For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that the one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him and for their sake he died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, we begin this new series with, uh, on the mission statement. Let's start by reading together our mission statement. Let's do it in unison. Ready? Uh, bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and our broken world. You know, our mission statement is meant to tell us what we are supposed to be doing as a church. It acts as a compass that directs us and it tells us where we're going. It, it informs us, especially as we're considering different uh, ideas and projects and things come to us as a ministry. And should we go here or do this or get involved in this effort? Then it's the mission statement that helps inform those decisions. But just to be clear, Jesus has already given us our mission. He tells us to go and make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey all things whatsoever he has commanded us. This is every church's overarching mission. A, a church's mission statement should really be the great commission applied to its uh, cultural context. Uh, and, and that's what our mission statement is. Our mission statement is simply the great commission put into the language of our culture and into uh, is expressing it in a way that is relevant to where we are as a church in Palm Bay, Brevard County. But it is the Great Commission. Let's make no mistake about it. And so this week, uh, we are going to do a deep dive, beginning this week and for the next four weeks, into the different aspects of our mission statement, which is applying the Great Commission. And we're taking the different key words or phrases, and I'm going to be bringing the first three messages, and then Pastor Ben is going to bring us home and on the final message on our broken world. And we're going to camp here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So let's set a, start by setting a little bit of context for this passage since we're jumping right in the middle of a book. You know, 2 Corinthians is obviously following on the heels of what? 1 Corinthians, right, exactly. Which actually, believe it or not, it might actually be like 4 Corinthians. There's evidence that there's multiple letters here that Paul wrote to Corinthians, but these are the ones that God inspired and, and preserved for us. 
And, and it, it's apparent that, you know, in 1 Corinthians, there was all kinds of problems, and Paul wrote to this church, and now in this letter, the church has begun to address several of these issues, but they are not out of the woods yet. They're still, <clears throat> excuse me, they're still challenging uh, Paul's authority, and they're, they're challenging the way he does ministry. And, you know, he's not as polished, and he's not as, as slick as other folks who have come through their church. And, and so in 2 Corinthians, in the first half of, of this book so far, he has been defending his ministry and explaining his approach to ministry so that they'll listen to his instructions. And this passage right here, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this passage is one of the clearest statements that Paul makes about the gospel. You will be hard-pressed, if you read all of the Pauline epistles, you'll be hard-pressed to find a crisper, cleaner, more concise statement as to the gospel he preached. In fact, the passage concisely describes both the message that Paul preached and his approach to ministry. And therefore, it's really important for us because this should be the message that we are proclaiming as Christians, that we are preaching and, and standing on as a church, and it describes how we should be doing ministry as both individuals and as a church. So this morning, uh, we are going to let this passage shape our understanding of our mission statement, and starting with this important word, bringing. What does it mean for us to bring gospel restoration? Why should we bring gospel restoration? And when we bring it, what should it look like? Uh, let's, let's start. Let's just jump right in. We're going to be focusing primarily on verses 14 and 15 and answering a very important question of, of why we should be bringing gospel restoration because this passage shows us what our underlying, what the necessary motivation is for us to bring gospel restoration. Believe it or not, the vision team, we, we actually had uh, long discussions about the first word of this mission statement. We considered all kinds of verbs. We had verbs all over the wall, right? And uh, we had sending and taking and talking and communicating and shouting and screaming. I don't know, I mean not screaming, but we had all kinds of verbs on the wall. But, but, but we knew that we wanted a couple of things. We wanted something that, that everybody in our church could participate in. We, we want our mission statement not to be something that is only for the pastors or the elders or the deacons or the small group leaders or a certain subset of the church. We want our mission statement to be something that connects with everything, everyone. And so we knew that we needed a word that could involve everyone in our church, regardless of the stage of life that you're in. Rich, poor, young, old, educated, not you know, well-educated in the scriptures or not well-educated, uh, 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 a mature Christian, a new Christian, religious, what, whatever. We wanted everyone to be able to engage in it. And we also wanted a word that communicated involvement and servanthood. And so that's partly why we landed in the word bringing. But even as we were having these discussions, we had concerns. Uh, we recognized how busy people are in our church. Now, all that busyness isn't necessarily good busyness, right? But it's a fact that this is a very busy 
time in American life, and it's a very busy time in most of our lives. And certainly people who are already plugged into our church and are serving the Lord, you feel busy, you feel stretched, you can't take on anything else. And so we didn't want this new day in our church to feel like, oh great, yet another burden that is on my shoulders. I can hardly get my kids in bed with a meal. Now I've got this on top of everything else. And, and we also recognized how easily Christians can take something that is good and over time, intentionally or unintentionally, we can make it into a legalistic obligation. In other words, you know, go to church, check. I mean, small group, check. Bring in gospel restoration, check, you know. And it just becomes another duty, another thing that we add to our already busy lives. And so we spent time asking a really important question. It's a question that we have to ask this morning. Why bring? Why? Why should you get involved in it? Why should you bring gospel restoration? Why bring? And the answer is right here in the beginning of this passage in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ controls us. Now, I want you to take your pen and maybe circle that word control. That word control is the underlying uh, word that is uh, our English word control. The Greek word here is suneko. And it means, the definition of it is to provide impulse for some activity, to hold within bounds so as to manage or guide. And normally, depending upon your translation, you're going to see it translated as to urge on, to impel, to direct, or to control. So in other words, literally, so the love of Christ provides the impulse. For the love of Christ provides the motivation. For the love of Christ manages us. For the love of Christ guides us. This is it. Now, there's a question here. Is it our love for Christ that manages us, that motivates us? Or is it Christ's love for us, that he's shown us, that motivates us, that guides us, that directs us? Which one is it? Well, the answer here, as you continue in verse 14, because we have concluded this, that none has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Excuse me, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, the apostle Paul is called the, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles for a reason. He could never get over the fact that Jesus didn't just die for the Jews, that the Messiah didn't just come for the, the nation of Israel, that Jesus died for Jews and Gentiles, that Jesus died for slave and free, for men and women, for rich and poor, for the powerful and the powerless. He died for the educated and the illiterate. He died for the powerful and those who need power. He died 
for all of times of humanity, from all across the globe, because Jesus' intention is that his kingdom will reflect people from every nation and tribe and people of every skin color, of every background. This will be Jesus' kingdom. And Paul never could get past this idea. It just enthused him that Jesus died for all of humanity. And there's no part of humanity that is left out of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. He died for us. For, circle that word, an important word. You should love that word. He died for in the place of. It's a word of substitution. In other words, every one of us, because we are born sinners, deserves to stand before a righteous and holy God and hear the sentence of condemnation and wrath and bear that wrath upon our own lives and bear that punishment ourselves. But Jesus He stood in our place. He took upon himself our punishment. And then when he died, he did not stay in that grave, but he rose again to life so that we could have eternal life and new life. And what is the right response from everyone who has been given this new life? That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What's the right response of everyone for whom Christ has died and they have believed? You see, folks, Jesus' death, it's sufficient for everyone who has ever lived on this planet, but it's only efficient for those who trust in him, who turn from sin and believe in his name. But for all those who trust and believe in his name and they become sons of God, what is the right response for every one of us who now live and have new life? Is to live not for selfish ambition and petty earthly desires and goals, but to live for him who loved us so much that he died to give us life. What's the motivation? You know, he, Paul, in talking to these Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, they, they had so many problems in their church. Immorality was a, was a major problem in their church. And, and, and in talking to them about their immorality, Paul will actually point right back to this very same truth. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. What's the motivation for not being involved in immorality? And what's the motivation for living a holy life? It's not, you know, because of diseases and because of unexpected pregnancies or, or any of these things. That the, no, the motivation is because we belong to Jesus. And he lives in us through his Holy Spirit. He has claim upon us. And this is life. He tells the Galatians 
In Galatians 2, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our motivation, folks, it's clear. The love Christ has for us, which he demonstrated on the cross, it motivates us to live for him. I think we could also add to this. The love that Christ has for us, clearly that motivates us, and, and, and the love that Christ has for so many in Palm Bay and Melbourne and Brevard County who he has died for, who have not yet professed his name, but one day will. That should motivate us to bring gospel restoration. So what does that look like? What does bringing look like? Uh, this passage, it provides us with a great word picture. Now, you know, this morning, we're basically here in verses 14 and 15, but we're going to jump to verses, verse 20 for, just a, for, for really the last, last part of this message and, and relax because next week we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 18 and then 19. So we're going to get to all of these verses in this passage. We're going to just dig into them, okay? But because there's this word picture in this passage that so closely relates to this idea of bringing. It helps us understand what it looks like to bring. I want us to jump to the first part of verse 20 real quick. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. You wanna know what it looks like to bring? Think that word ambassador. Because each of us have a calling on our lives. Because we belong to Jesus, he died for us. He's given us new life. He's given us all a calling. Paul isn't just talking about himself here. He, he says we all are new creations now. We all have this calling on our lives, ambassadors. Now, what does that mean, to be an ambassador? Each of us. We're now ambassadors for Christ. What does that mean? The word ambassador, uh, it only appears twice in the New Testament. It, 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 it's the word presbuo. Does that sound familiar, presbuo? You know, we are covenant church, but we are covenant what? Presbyterian, right. Uh, that, this word, presbuo, uh, is got, it's in the family of that word presbyteros, presbyterian. It, it means a representative, and presbyterian just means that our church is governed through a representative form of government, like our nation, you know? We are a republic. We're not a democracy. Don't get me on that soapbox. We're a republic, right? We're a representative democracy, republic. We, we elect representatives. And as a church, that's what you do. You, rep, you elect representatives there, and they're elders, and the elders govern the church representatives. And that's what Presbyterian is. That's what an ambassador is. It's a representative of a legal authority. He says, hey, this is who you are. And this is what it means to bring. You're, you're an ambassador. You're a representative. And, and the great thing is, is really ambassadors today and ambassadors in the Roman Empire at the time of this writing, they functioned in similar fashions. You know, an ambassador in that day uh, did one of two, basically one of two things. The ambassador would represent Caesar or the Senate, or maybe, if, you know, by, by bringing 
the message of Caesar or the will of Caesar to a, a people. Maybe, they're, maybe the, you know, the Egyptians were starting to rebel and, or they weren't paying their taxes, and so the ambassador would be sent on behalf of Caesar or the Senate to the Egyptians and to their governor and to that group of, and he would say, all right, you guys got to tighten it up, send us your, and so he would bring the message of the leader to the people, and he would represent the interest of the leader to those people. That's one way to bring. That's one way to think of an ambassador, and certainly that's what Paul was doing, right? Paul was traveling all around the world to these different locations. He'd gone to the city of Corinth. He'd gone to Rome and Athens and all these different places. And he was bringing to these people the message of his king, Jesus. He was representing Jesus to these people, bringing to them the gospel message. That's one way to think about what it means for us to be ambassadors we bring the gospel to people. We represent our King, Jesus, before people. But an ambassador also did something else. Sometimes, rather than bring the message to people, the ambassador would bring people into the presence of the Senate or the Caesar or his king and give them an audience, and give them interaction with the leader. See the difference there? Sometimes he would go out and bring a message. Sometimes he would bring people in and serve as an envoy, as a mediator, to introduce them, people, to his people, to his leader. And you see this, for example, in the New Testament. One of my favorite apostles is Andrew. Andrew was a bringer. And what you always see him doing is bringing people to Jesus. In fact, his very first exposure in John chapter 1, Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist along with the apostle John. <coughs> Excuse me. But when they saw Jesus, they began to follow Jesus. And almost immediately we read, Andrew then went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. This is what you see Andrew doing. And so this is our options. As ambassadors, we can bring Jesus to people. We can bring people to Jesus. We can bring the gospel message to our community, or we can bring our community, people in our community to our gospel community. Maybe our small group, maybe into our church, maybe into our, whatever it may be, but we can bring people in our community into the gospel community, or we can bring the gospel to our community. Either way, this is what it looks like to bring. Okay, this is what it looks like to be an ambassador, to represent. So practically speaking, let's get very practical this morning. Practically speaking, what does it look like to be an ambassador for Christ who's motivated by his love, who's bringing. Well, bringing, folks, starts with prayer. It starts with prayer. You, you see it even in this passage, or in this book right here in 2 Corinthians. And the first portion of this book, Paul begins by telling the Corinthians how hard 
it has been, how ministry has virtually destroyed him and his co-workers. In fact, in chapter one, he says, you know, we couldn't come to see you. We wanted to see you, but I was afraid it was going to be too divisive. It might have been upsetting, but in actuality, it was just because we almost died. We were in despair for our life. We thought our, you know, checks have finally been cashed. This is it. We're about to hear the trumpet calls. And then Paul, he says something very interesting. He says in chapter one, but, but God delivered us. And how did he deliver us? He says, you helped us. He says in verse 11, you helped us. And it was through prayer. You must also help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Bringing folks starts with prayer. And that's why with this whole thing that we have talked to you about of how do we engage with the mission in, in three, two, one and restore, the three is begin with prayer. Pray for three people that you know who need the Lord Jesus in their life. They need gospel restoration. And if you don't know three, then pray that God would give you three people. Here in Brevard County, that you could begin to get into their lives. And then pray for three, and then pray that out of those three, God would give you two, at least of those three, at least two deep relationships. Genuine, deep, loving friendships and relationships. And pray that God would give you out of those two at least one. God, would you, give me, would you allow me with at least one of those to enter into a gospel conversation? And would you use me to bring gospel restoration into this person's life? It, it, it's, it starts with prayer. It's bathed in prayer. Bringing, bringing starts with prayer. Secondly, secondly, bringing requires equipping. Listen, as we get into this series, you're going to see, especially as we get into people's deepest needs, now, there's a multitude of ways, practically speaking, that bridges are built, and you get into people's lives, and especially when you get into people's lives, guess what? You get into the dirt and the muck. We have a saying around here, ministry is messy. It's messy, and it's painful, and it's inconvenient, and it's hard. And you don't always have the answers, and a lot of times you feel totally overwhelmed and unequipped. And so bringing requires getting equipped. And so, for example, if you get into someone's life and you begin to serve them and love them the way we are to love one another and to love our neighbors, there will come a point where the door will be opened up. Peter says, because of your good works, you will be asked for the answer to, to ask. You will be asked for the hope that you have within you. Are you ready to answer that question? This is why we have to be equipped before the question's asked. This is why we're offering things like the friendship evangelism. Listen, if you haven't been through it, sign up. Start getting equipped. If you've been through it, do it again. Sharpen your tools so that when you're asked, you're ready. Bringing requires equipping. Thirdly, bringing involves surrendering to self-interest and sacrificing for the advancement of the kingdom. 
Bringing involves surrendering to self-interest and sacrificing for the advancement of the kingdom. Listen, this is not something that we get involved with, with, you know, and it's just convenient. No. It's messy. It's hard. Being an ambassador uh, isn't cocktail parties and, and Rolls Royces. Not ambassadors for Jesus Christ, right? Not at all. You know, there's a story in the New Testament. I love it. It's one of the miracles of Jesus. It's a great miracle where he feeds 5,000. You remember that story? Jesus is teaching the people, and, uh, and he's, been, he's, he's you know, gone past the allotted time that his worship director gave him for his message, something that I never do. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so the disciples come to him, and they say, hey, the people are hungry. We've got to let them go. There's no food around, et cetera. And so you know the story, right? Jesus sends them out, and they, there's no food except for a boy, one little boy. And he's got five pieces, you know, five little small loaves like biscuits. And because he was a southern boy, he had biscuits. And he had three pieces of fish, right? And that was it. He had enough lunch to feed himself. He had a good mama, right? She packed his lunch for him. That was all. Now, Now, can you imagine what that conversation was like? And by the way, who brought the boy to Jesus and the lunch to Jesus? Anybody know? Andrew, right. Andrew brought the boy, because Andrew was a bringing guy, right? And he brings, can you imagine what that conversation was like? Hey, son, we want your lunch. Jesus wants the lunch to feed all these people. Now, a lot of you guys who are like, you know, guys and girls who are extremely logical, you can imagine, I mean, what would have gone through your head, right? It was like, you know, you could have said, Look, it's not my fault that they were stupid enough not to pack a lunch. I'm not I'm eating my lunch, you know, let them go hungry, right? Or you might have just done the math and said, you know, logically, look, there is no way this little bit of food is going to feed all these people. I give up this food, and now that just means we're all hungry. I might as well keep it for myself so at least one of us isn't starving, right? That would have been logical. That would have been the logical calculus in that scenario, right? But this little boy, he surrendered the little bit that he had. And what did God do with that little bit that he had? He did a stupendously awesome, miraculous thing because that's what God does. God takes the little bit that his people surrender when they surrender it with a willing, joyful heart and they participate. He does incredible things with it. And church, I want to I just bring this home for us. Think about what will happen when we all surrender what we have, no matter how small it is. No matter how small we think it is. When we surrender it, God does great things. We're, we're, we're closing out our, our, faith, our missions conference and faith promise. Let's just go there for a second. Let's get down and dirty. Let's just see how this works out. In our own church, 77 of our families, about a, roughly about a, a third or so of our families, are, are fourth to a third, are, have made a faith promise commitment. So far, $130,000. It's awesome. Our budget is 170000 So there's roughly 200 families opting out. Let's do the math. Let's think about it for a second. Just think, 
if, the two, if you're part of the 200, I want you to listen to me for a second. Just think about what God could do with a little bit. Let's take $25, okay? $25 a month that you give to help us plant churches, five churches around the world and churches in our own backyard this year. Think about what God can do with that. If 200 families do $25, that puts us $20,000 over our need this year. That's $60,000. $25 is you know, $300 a year out of your family. Put it another way, $25 a month is 75 cents a day, about the cost of a cup of coffee if you can find it that cheap anymore, right? Just think what we do. If all of us just sacrifice a cup of coffee a day, what we can do this year in our own backyard, we can help bring gospel restoration. Church, would you pray about this and trust God? And you may not think that you have it, but bringing involves surrendering to our self-interest, and it involves us sacrificing for the advancement of the kingdom. So take a step of faith. Final, bringing. This is a hard one. thought that last one was hard. This was even harder. Bringing, bringing means that we open up our homes and our lives and our church to other people. But those who are not already inside our circles. Let's use the word outsiders. Bringing means that we have to open up our homes and our lives and our church to outsiders and be hospitable. Be hospitable. You know, Rosaria Butterfield, write this name down, Rosario Butterfield. She's written a great book. Write this down. The gospel comes with a house key. The gospel comes with a house key. And Rosaria Butterfield, I'm going to tell you this story in closing, your favorite words in the sermon. Um, the, uh, Rosaria Butterfield is a pastor's wife up in Durham, North Carolina. And uh, her husband pastors the First Reformed Presbyterian Church right outside the camp, East Campus of Duke University. And uh, she tells the story of, of living on a nice street in a nice neighborhood, about 300 homes there in Durham. And one day, living, they lived at the end of a cul-de-sac, and one day, across the street from them, at the other home, at the end of the cul-de-sac, a gentleman moves in. His name is Hank. And Hank uh, was a weird guy. He had a lot of problems. Uh, one, thing, one of his problems was that he was a war veteran, and he had severe post-traumatic stress disorder. You could tell that he was emotionally disturbed, psychologically disturbed, and to make matters worse, Hank had a 100-pound bulldog by the name of Tank who did not know the meaning of a leash or a collar. And so Rosario and her two small little children, she was a homeschooling mom, as they walk out onto the yard, they see a 100-pound slobbering you know, bulldog running across to them. You can imagine how petrified that made them feel, right? This dog ran everywhere. 
But being good neighbors, they made a little, you know, welcoming gift, some cookies or cake, whatever, and she and her kids took it over, and they rang the doorbell to give it to Hank, to welcoming him into the neighborhood. He opened up the door and snarled at them, and he he took the gift, and as they were sitting there talking, trying to engage in small talk, he took out a tool and began to disassemble his doorbell right in front of them. It kind of sends a message, doesn't it? And no matter what they tried, he wanted nothing to do with them. And so do you know what the Butterfields did? Bringing starts with what, folks? Prayer. They began to pray for Hank, that God would open some way for them to have a relationship. Because you can't force a relationship if someone doesn't want it. But one day, as she was edu- teaching her children at school and their home, a frantic pounding began on their door. And she ran open and she opened up the door and there was Hank and he was in all kinds of frantic. And he asked for their help because Tank had run away and not come home. And so Rosario and her children, who loved Tank, by the way, because he would roll over and let you do his belly and all the good things that a good dog will do that cats don't. Um, he, oh, sorry. Sorry, cat lovers. Um, you know, they got, they, they got all onto it. They got onto social media. They made posters. They got onto the Next Door app, and they started advertising for Tank. They took it seriously. And guess what? They found Tank for Hank. And that changed their relationship. And now a budding friendship began. And this snarling guy with all of his problems, barriers started dropping and walls started dropping. And and he started taking walks with them in the woods by their house and learning the birds and cutting down trees. And when they needed a certain kind of buckle, he always had it because his garage had everything because he hoarded it all. And over the time, they really established a strong friendship and they would pray for him and, and it was neat. Now, this is where if this was one of those cheesy Christian movies, right? You know, Hank falls on his knees in the grass one morning and says, what must I do to be saved? And they all, you know, go into the kingdom together singing the Messiah. But that's not what happened. In fact, what happened was one morning as Rosario was having her devotions, finally she turns on her phone and her phone blows up and She opens up her drapes, and there's DEA agents all over her yard. Her neighborhood is now in her yard, and there's crime scene tape all around Hank's house. And that year, the largest drug bust in Durham County was Hank because he actually had a meth lab in this house, and he was a meth dealer, and they had no idea. And uh, as he is being taken off to jail, he's crying, and his one concern was what? tank. And he begs them to take care of tank. And so the neighbors are, uh, you know, befuddled and they're confused and they're furious. Why did you befriend this guy? You see, folks, whenever we open up our lives to people who are outside and who have problems, guess what? There's going to be a danger to your own reputation in that type of lifestyle. But, but the Butterfields opened up their house. They actually sent out 300 invitations to their entire neighborhood to come into their home and talk about what had happened. And I won't tell you the entire story. I didn't invite you to buy the book. It's a great book. But what came out of that was something that only God can do when we open up our homes and our lives to, to those who need gospel restoration. 
They found that there were many people in their neighborhood who were addicted to alcohol and to drugs. They found that they had to have standing open invitations every week to their homes because when people do have addictions, they don't show up to the first invite. They have a hard time making it to those types of events. But if you have it on a standing basis, at God's appointed time, they walk through your door. And they had lots of hard conversations with neighbors. They prayed, what do we do? They were tempted to, to see their home as their castle and raise the drawbridge and get safely behind their walls, but they, they were convinced, no, God doesn't call us to see our homes as castles. Our homes are embassies for Jesus Christ. And what they saw was that as broken and in need of Christ that Hank the meth dealer was, their neighbors were equally in need of it. So out of all of that, ultimately, they learned a lot of lessons. They saw the desperate loneliness of people who had nice homes and nice cars and nice jobs, and, and they were dulling all of that desperate loneliness in so many different ways, whether it was with substances or toys or careers, all in need of the gospel, and God began to do a work in neighbors' lives. And Rosaria Butterfield said something that I thought was very interesting. She says, we live in a world where our words cannot be stronger than our relationships. We live in a world where our words cannot be stronger than our relationships. The gospel has strong, strong words. To deliver those types of words, we have to have strong relationships. Because at its core, bringing means we allow Christ to love others through us the way He has already loved us and continues to love us. It may mean opening up our homes to others. It may mean being a regular guest in the home of others, like Jesus, who always was attending parties. But regardless, in all cases, bringing is letting Jesus Christ love others through us the way He has already loved us. By the way, the Butterfields kept loving Hank in prison, and he did come to know Jesus Christ, and he still loves Jesus Christ, even as he's still in prison. He's now a brother in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Will you help us Lord Jesus, starting with me, starting with the elders and the deacons of our church, the leaders of our church, it does not come natural to any of us to be ambassadors for Christ. Our flesh fights against it. Our, our world fights against it. We are tempted by the enemy to, to be silent when we should speak. We're tempted by our busy schedules. Some of that busyness even comes from within our own church to not open up our lives and our homes. God, give us the wisdom that we need to reorder priorities so that we can be your ambassadors for Jesus Christ. 
Help us to have an ambassadorial spirit, even in this church, so that when newcomers walk in, they see smiling faces who are genuinely glad to have them with us each Sunday morning. And Lord, we want to do this, and not because we're in some quest to build a, a, a bigger or a larger or a more reputable church. Lord Jesus, we want to do this because we want to participate in lots of stories like Hank's. Lord, we, we know that you have your people here in this community that you will save. You will redeem and you will restore. And you will let them experience the love that you had for them when you died for their sins. And Lord Jesus, we want to be a part of that story of redemption. For your glory and for their good, we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.